So welcome back everyone. If it works to have your video on, that's uh, much appreciated. It's nice to be able to uh, see people. So today I want to continue to explore metta practice, loving kindness practice, to give some of the um, understanding behind the practice, to explore some of the challenges that come up when we practice, and to give uh, plenty of time for us to discuss how the practice of loving kindness is going. So first, uh, just a few words to remember the, the larger place of loving-kindness practice or metta practice within our general practice. That uh, It's sometimes said that the whole of the teachings and practices is like a bird that has two wings. One wing is that of wisdom and the other wing is that of compassion, which really stands for the qualities of the kind and compassionate heart. And I think as I mentioned last time, I've been very influenced by learning about how the uh, Vietnamese, starting around the 1930s in the anti-colonial struggle, uh, said we need to have, uh, we need to have wisdom, yes, compassion, yes, but also courage, which I think is related to the area of action. And to me, this gives a wonderful way to see the entirety of the practice. We develop uh, mindfulness, we develop uh, clear seeing, which is especially connected with the cultivation of wisdom. We also uh, hear the wisdom teachings. We get a sense of the understanding of the, the roots of dukkha, the roots of well-being, the roots of uh, being contracted, being expansive. We also develop the qualities of the heart, loving-kindness, compassion, and others. And we especially, initially, develop these more separately. So we this morning we did loving-kindness practice and we did mindfulness practice and we did them separately. And as we mature, they, they integrate more and more with each other. And we also more and more bring them out into all the parts of our lives, into, you know, into the world. And we could say that the whole direction of our practice is to lead, uh, lead us to be able to live life with what we might call a wise and loving awareness that we're able to bring into all the different parts of our lives, into our being with ourselves, into our relationships, into our, into our life in the larger world. And I think it goes without saying that 
bringing these qualities of wisdom and love into the larger world is deeply, deeply needed. Deeply, deeply needed. So that's that's one of our horizons. So I want to uh, say a little bit more about loving kindness, focus a little bit more on the challenges to practice, and then how to bring loving kindness practice out into um, all the parts of our daily lives. That'll be my focus today. Again, leaving a good chunk of time for us just to talk about how our own practices um, are going. I mentioned last time that the word in the original language that we translate as loving kindness is metta, M-E-T-T-A, and that this is connected etymologically with words that have to do with friend and friendship. And I, I also remarked how in most other cultures than mainstream Western culture of the last hundred years, maybe, friendship has played a much larger role than it might now. You know, Facebook notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, and it, you know, people might have uh, friends that they're connected to, that they're very deep, long-standing relationships to. And that's for different reasons, harder in the contemporary world, but still very much present for many of our lives. Uh, and so there's that sense of a, a friend, friendliness and friendship actually being a deep quality that we can um, see manifest. So the connotations of loving kindness have to do with this warm, expansive friendliness, goodwill, kindness. We could use the word love. There's some differences and connotations, but all of these are pretty, pretty close. And then loving kindness is also deeply related to other, we might say, heart qualities like compassion, joy, equanimity, gratitude, forgiveness, and uh, uh, empathy. You know, and I, many of the retreats I teach, we work with actually all of these multiple heart qualities. For example, in teaching on uh, transforming the judgmental mind, you know, I feel a need to bring in all seven of those heart qualities. <laughs> need need good good tools. And so this is also a beautiful way to frame our lives. Developing kindness and living by kindness and warmth, integrating that with wisdom and skillful action. I think has been identified in most spiritual traditions as one way to center our lives in goodness and wonder and love and wisdom. It's something very ancient that we have the possibility of following now. Again, we can be inspired by the Buddha's words from 2,600 years ago. With a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, just like we did a little while ago, and learning more and more to live from that. Learning to live from that loving awareness, to use the phrase of uh, the great teacher Ramdas. 
to live from that more and more. This is a beautiful poem that came from over 2,000 years ago from one of the early Buddhist nuns, a nun named Mita, which is very close in meaning to Metta. These are her words from over 2,000 years ago. It's really about loving-kindness practice or metta practice. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you can make your mind and heart your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen. I have followed the path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. I have followed the path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. Again, in other traditions, we find this in the Jewish Talmud. The highest form of wisdom is kindness. From uh, Christian contemplative Thomas Merton, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business. It is nobody's business. What we were asked to do is to love, and this love will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. Then from the Islamic tradition, from Rumi, love is the water of life. Drink it down with heart and soul. Yay, yay, Rumi. <laughs> From the 13th century. And so we've seen different ways of practicing loving kindness. We can work with the phrases as we did in the guided practice. We can work with the radiating metta. And I've sometimes done kind of a hybrid between them where I have the radiating going and then I direct it to a particular being, sometimes with phrases. You can experiment with this. Loving-kindness is very, very personal. We want to really find ways that it works for us. And it's fine to experiment some, to see what works for you, both in formal meditation and in daily life. And then we bring it out into daily life. And I've, I've really delighted by some of the people I work with having very, very alive metta practice, where different people bring metta practice into parenting with very young ones, into healthcare work, into uh, meetings, into relationships, and so forth. You know, one person I worked with, uh, I think I may have mentioned, develop a practice, continually asking, what's the kind thing to do, moment by moment, having that be a daily practice, 
You can go into a, a meeting, go into maybe a difficult conversation with a friend and have the intention, may I bring kindness to the situation. Doesn't guarantee that we will, but it helps. As we do meta practice, we experience two main things. First, we experience often more kindness, more care, more warmth, more friendliness. And then the other thing we experience when we do loving kindness practice is we experience what gets in the way of loving kindness practice. We experience at times more of our own reactivity, sometimes more going into our territory of our difficulty or our wounds. We discover our habitual tendencies that maybe block the heart and so forth. So it's interesting that when we practice loving kindness, we sometimes stir up things. So just to know that that's normal, not a problem. We stir up things and when I teach one-week meta retreats, people have way more intense dreams than on mindfulness retreats. It's normal. It happens. And so a crucial dimension of loving-kindness practice with the phrase is, is that we incline with the phrases towards kindness. We use phrases which are most evocative of my own warm heart. That's how we choose them. And we say them, and then we let whatever happens happen. That when we do loving-kindness practice, we're not trying to make loving-kindness happen. We're inviting it to occur. And again, sometimes it will occur, and sometimes what gets in the way of the kind heart will surface. That's really a crucial dimension. The language I use is, Loving-kindness is an intention practice, not a production practice. We're not trying to produce it. That, that's not going to work. The reason that loving-kindness ultimately does work, that's the good news, it ultimately works if you stay with it. The reason it works, and this is really from the teachings, is that there's a quality of our being which is deep, which is that of warmth and kindness and love. That's in our being. You know, in, in the Buddhist uh, teachings and teachings of the Buddha, it's said that there is a quality of our being which is brightly shining, which is connected with metta. There is a sense of a radiant mind and heart. It's said the mind and heart are brightly shining, but they get covered over. And I like to think about this as looking at, um, let's see, Carlita, I'm noticing some chat. So we want to turn off the chat to everyone now. I think we want to do that, but we can, we can bring that in later, I think, uh, if, there, if there is a question from there. And, but we can, we can see, I, one thing that's been very uh, remarkable is to see what happens when people are in need or their crises. And often 
there is the beautiful heart that comes out. I saw this just yesterday with my sister's surgery, you know, and a real network of care. And there, there is a remarkable book by the uh, San Francisco author, Rebecca Solnit. She wrote a book called A Paradise Built in Hell, which was an analysis of a number of natural disasters, especially, you know, such as earthquakes, such as the San Francisco earthquake, more recent events, different kinds of sort of social disasters. And the authorities often think that we need a lot of law and order because people will loot and so forth, but they don't find that historically. What they find, this is the thesis of her book, is that people's care and love comes out in crises. And one of the beautiful accounts that's in the book is from the great uh, Catholic uh, spiritual activist, Dorothy Day, who grew up in Oakland, California, and was, I think, uh, eight years old in 1906, during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And she spoke about her mother and all of her neighbors kept on making food for the people from San Francisco who would come to Oakland and how there was a beautiful outpouring of generosity and care. And Dorothy Day said, while the crisis lasted, people loved each other. It's a remarkable statement in two ways, right? Both that the crisis brought out the love and that when the crisis was over, people went back to their habits, right? But I, for me, that shows something about what we are at our depths. And so I think it's really, really helpful to, to know. And yet there are challenges to our loving-kindness practice. Loving-kindness practice is not easy. And I want to name three main challenges and then talk about how to work with them. One of them is being distracted, which is a general problem of our meditation. You know, the mind goes to the past and future. We have habits, all sorts of things. Uh, a second challenge is, is that it's sometimes hard to access the heart the kind heart, that the heart gets blocked sometimes. And then the third challenge is, and these are kind of interrelated, is that stuff comes up and we notice what gets in the way of our kind heart. You know, it could be our, you know, our um, residues of pain or our own wounds or our judgmental mind or our habitual mind and so forth, what, what gets in the way. And can make, for example, for a large number of people, loving-kindness for self is very hard. You know, when you go back to the uh, writings of the Buddha, the Buddha thinks 2,600 years ago that the best way, uh, that the best and easiest place to access loving-kindness is in loving-kindness towards oneself. We find that. I need to say that 21st century loving-kindness teachers have learned to modify those instructions. <laughs> and we find that actually loving-kindness towards self for many people is hard for various reasons. 
maybe, and I'll, I'll come back to that. So how do we work with these three challenges? How do we work with them in formal meditation practice and then in our, in our, um, in our daily lives? The first is challenges to concentration or the fact that we often get distracted. We get sleepy, we get antsy. How many people even in the session today had some degree of distraction or feeling restless with the meditation? You know, very, very common. And one of the answers to this is to develop uh, more stability of mind and loving kindness is a way to do it. Our meditation generally will help us to develop more stability of mind. It can be, uh, um, we can use the word concentration. Actually, it's not so much a matter of being really willful. Sometimes in the word concentration, there's almost like a, a sense of, I will will this to happen. And that's not the case. Actually, the etymology of samadhi, which is the word we translate as concentration, is really about bringing together, placing together different aspects. So it's really bringing our mind together, having composure, settledness, and stability. And we can, we can do that with the uh, practice of loving kindness, but it's helpful to have kind of a balance of ease and persistence. It's not like we try really, really hard. That generally is not going to work to develop more stability. We want to have ease and persistence keeping on coming back. And actually, what we'll find over time is that a quiet mind, a quiet, stable mind and heart are the nature of our being. When we've worked through some of our habits, that's what's left. A quiet, stable, open, hopefully wise and heartful being. And so concentration isn't actually something that we manufacture, but it's rather something that we can tune into. That's quite so. So that quality of balancing ease, the Buddha talked about developing concentration or samadhi as being like tuning a lute. We want it neither too tight nor too loose. So one piece of guidance would be, am I generally a little bit too tight or a little bit too loose? And if you can locate yourself as needing balancing in a certain way, Bring that intention in when you start practicing. That can be helpful. A second way that loving-kindness practice is hard is that we have a hard time often accessing our hearts. You know that um, this was the, the case for me. I think I'm a generally sensitive being, but with my conditioning, particularly growing up and being a student, I was conditioned to think all the time. Anyone have that conditioning? <laughs> and so I was conditioned to think all the time. 
and you know, and also you know, with gender conditioning and so forth. Probably when I was 20 years old, if someone asked me, "How do you feel?" I would tell them what I was thinking. Right, and so I had to go through a learning process, you know, to be able to access the open heart. You know, meta practice played a big role. So did relationships, and I think being being with beauty. But it's for some of us there are、uh, blocks that make it hard to access the heart. A way that I like to think about loving kindness practice is. That we learn to lead with the heart, or we learn to lead with the kind heart, the kind and wise heart, and this becomes more and more how we live. Again, but sometimes we have to, sometimes we have to、uh, access that, and loving kindness can be a way of doing that, and it can be challenging. I know the first time I did a loving kindness retreat, I didn't feel much at all, but if you stay with it. And find the phrases, and find the way that works for you. We can access that heart more and more. And there, this is really connected very much with the third reason that loving kindness can be hard, is that something may be, at times, getting in the way of the heart. It could be, you know, a wound from the past, pain from the past, conditioning from the past. Some of the things that I mentioned in my own. Situation. It can be some of our habitual patterns, like the judgmental mind. You know, and when we're doing loving kindness practice, we can have all sorts of things come up. And you know, what I've suggested is that that is normal. You know, we can also have unresolved issues come up that are there for us. You know, when we're practicing, you know, all of these、uh, challenges are very much interrelated. So it's helpful to really notice. What makes the loving kindness hard? Is it is it our distracted habitual thinking, or do other things come up that you know maybe when we're doing the loving kindness practice, like we're doing the loving kindness practice towards uh, you know uh, someone towards whom we feel really warm, and we find ourselves saying, "I'm wishing for your happiness. What about mine? Wah, 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 wah. I want my." I want, I want what I get, and we might, or we might notice、uh, self-judgment coming up if we bring loving kindness、uh, to ourselves. And you know, this is、uh, an area, as I mentioned, that I, I've worked with a lot, and it's really very, very pervasive. This quality of the judgmental mind, particularly judgmental mind towards self, but also to others, and there are ways of working with it. That again can take time. Part of it is bringing mindfulness and just noticing the judgmental mind if it's there a lot. Noticing when it comes up with loving kindness, and、uh, being able to notice it over time, we can get to the roots of the judgmental mind. Offering,、um, doing loving kindness can be really, really helpful. When I work with people over time with the judgmental mind. I say it's helpful to have three practices: mindfulness practice to notice when the judgments are there, either of oneself or another. Secondly, some kind of regular heart practice that you do at least ten or fifteen minutes a day. And then thirdly, a body practice so you can be aware of the body, so one can be aware of the body, because 
the judgmental mind will manifest at the level of the body. And we have to really study how it manifests and get to get to know it well. And there's a lot more I could say about this. One one thing that I and maybe I should just define the judgmental mind as I you know as I have uh, come to do, and give some examples because it's um, it's a major block of our, our of our metta. And the judgmental mind is what I use to think about something of a reactive nature where we are very judgmental of ourselves for something that happened or judgmental of another person or of society. And what I found characteristic of the judgmental mind is that there's often some kind of noticing which can have some validity. You know, I might notice my coworker did not keep my agreement, did not keep our agreement. And I'm very judgmental about that. I notice something important. Or I notice, um, you know, I've, I'm very judgmental about some uh, social injustice. And what's characteristic of the judgmental mind is that there's some kind of noticing linked with reactivity. And the reactivity is pushing away the heart's closed down, it's going to a narrative level. I have found that it's a kind of defense mechanism against the heart which is in pain. And what we do with the practice with the judgmental mind is that we learn how to distinguish what was valid, you know, the fact that I noticed uh, the lack of keeping of an agreement. I really want to notice that and follow up. I noticed injustice. I noticed something maybe that I did, which was not right. And I want to notice what's valid and then work with the reactivity and transform the reactivity so it's no longer there. So then I can come back and work with the insight or the noticing in a non-reactive way when I talk to my coworker or when I'm an activist or when I deal with my own situation. And so how we do that is a longer story but I hope that can be clear. So I'm distinguishing the judgmental mind from what we sometimes talk about as simply a non-reactive judgment. You know, like, you know, this is what happened. Okay. So how do, maybe I'll just make a few further comments, how to bring this out into our daily lives and in the world. How to have that sense of, being loving awareness all or most of the time. Probably sometimes we feel this. How many people at least know at certain moments that you can really lead with love and kindness and experience this for a period of time? How to have that be more and more there? That's what our practice is about. You know, I think of a great Tibetan teacher named Kala Rinpoche who went to the Boston Aquarium and they saw him knocking on the aquarium. And they asked him, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to get the attention of the fish so that I can really directly bring loving kindness to them. This was his everyday way of being. So my suggestion for daily practice is to do at least 10 or 15 minutes a day of loving kindness. That will keep it going. That will keep the loving kindness strong enough so it can be there sometimes when you need it. One of the ways we work with loving-kindness practice is when we're in a really 
difficult or painful place. Like you wake up in the middle of the night, really judgmental towards yourself or towards someone else about what happened yesterday. Anyone have that happen in the last month? Yeah. The last year? <laughs> okay. Okay. And sometimes in the middle of the night, it's too much for mindfulness. It's too strong. That's where loving kindness can sometimes be helpful. Because what's actually wise is to shift away from being stuck and being judgmental. Loving kindness, because it's based on concentration, can help us shift away. But the loving kindness has to be strong enough to, to be there in the middle of the night. I think if we do 10 or 15 minutes a day, it'll be strong enough to really be of use in those difficult moments, middle of the night or during the day when all of a sudden, you know, we just get really down on ourselves and we get stuck. Loving kindness can be used in that way. We can also bring it into activities, as I've mentioned. Have the intention to come to this conversation with kindness. This event with kindness. Keep on making the intention like that. You know, the great uh, activist Julia Butterfly Hill, who sat in the, the redwood tree for over a year, she, her practice was asking, is my action coming out of love? Is what I'm doing moment to moment coming out of love? That can be a beautiful way to bring in loving kindness practice. And we can do that once or twice or three times a day. It doesn't take very much time. It can be really a wonderful practice. We can bring loving kindness into our, our speaking, into our talking with each other. The actual guidelines for speech practice that the Buddha gave are four guidelines, one of which is to bring loving kindness and warmth into our speech. The four guidelines are being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a warm heart, and having good timing. <laughs> I like the last one, good timing. Okay, the Buddha says, how's your timing? How's your timing? How's your timing? Um, but that third one is about warmth. So can I bring loving kindness into my speech? By the way, all four have to be present for skillful speech. You have to have all four of them. You can have a wonderful, kind heart in your speech. And if your timing is off, it's not going to work. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's really crucial. This, this is from a, um, a set of passages from children about love. Um, I, th I hope that it's real, but this is, um, this is, uh, uh, reportedly from Billy, age four. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. You know that their name is safe. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Very, very beautiful. So... We, that's uh, bringing metta into our speech and then bringing it into our relationships, into our work, uh, into the world. From the 8th century, Shantideva, whenever catching set of others, look on them with an open, loving heart. Can do If you get good at the radiating metta, you can go out in the world and fill up a bus or public transportation, or a neighborhood with your radiating metta. It's a beautiful practice. 
you know, and again, we start with this where it's easier. You know, I found that one way that I practiced that developed from an online retreat was bringing loving kindness and joy to plants and trees and bushes when I walk around my neighborhood. They are, you know, for many of us, easier to bring meta to than, than human beings. And so it's a very nice way to start. It really gets the energy going. So I sometimes walk around my neighborhood bringing that sense of friendliness and kindness and goodwill to plants and trees and bushes. May you continue to blossom well, right? And it's become a beautiful practice that opens up. And when I've done it, I found it, of course, extends when I see more bushes and trees generally than people when I walk, but um, it extends to people. And I found myself also bringing loving kindness to automobiles. May you continue to run well. And so you can, you can, can try it like this, can work like this. And then bringing, bringing loving kindness out into the, the broader world. You know, um, we know that people like Gandhi and King and Thich Nhat Hanh have brought, you know, saw their work as bringing love and loving kindness into the world as part of a strategy for social change. That, you know, their versions of nonviolence were deeply integrated with a sense of love and kindness. This is from Gandhi. Belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds, responds to love. This is from Gandhi from the first half of the 20th century. Cornell West, the activist and scholar says, justice is the public face of love. Maybe I'll just finish with two passages. Uh, President Obama had a speech once in which he talked about metta. Did you know that? It wasn't on the front page of my newspaper. But he, in uh, 2012, President Obama went to uh, Burma, Myanmar, of course, before the recent coup, he went to uh, and he gave a talk at Rangoon University and he talked about having gone to one of the great temples in Burma and been inspired by Metta. And this is what he said. President, the president, one time president of the United States talking about Metta, probably first time it happened. I've just seen earlier today the golden stupa of Shwedagon, and I have been moved by the timeless idea of metta, the belief that our time on this earth can be defined by tolerance and by love. President, President Obama. And then I'll finish with the earlier poem from the early Buddhist nun that I read from Mita. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. 
And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty it will lead you home. Let's just stay with whatever is there for you right now for a minute or so. Anything touched by the talk, anything opening up, any thoughts, feelings. We'll stay with this just for a little while. Now let me invite you to us to see whether there's anything you'd like to ask about the formal practice of metta, about something that came up in your practice, about anything I said, about something you want to share, maybe a way that you deepened in metta or, or care or goodwill. Again, you can use either uh, the raised hand function, or if you have your video on, I can see you. Please, uh, Leslie, yeah. Hi, everybody. Here from Tucson. I'll make this short. I have a little three-minute sand timer, so I won't take too long. But this is a perfect topic for me. I, I help uh, run a once-a-month um, practice at a, a meditation center here in Tucson. And I brought a meta practice at the end last month and then someone someone came right up to me and said they didn't like it and they they said it was too long and <laughs> it kind of hurt my feelings clearly and what I heard was that I don't like you you know I don't like what you brought to it and and she immediately became my um my challenging person because yeah. uh, you know the whole list of things you know and so she's been my challenging person all month and then it's just a perfect um, reading because a uh, talk because I'm doing it tomorrow night and you know that the, the the easy part is to just run and go back to what everybody else is doing and to not not listen to myself but to stay with it and then maybe talk about it a little bit about how hard meta is you know it brings up stuff she probably brought up stuff in her practice that that she hadn't looked at yet and you know I'm I'm um trying to listen to myself and do my and bring this meta practice every every month it's I'm the only one who does it and I just kind of want to keep doing it but my question was how do I know I'm following my heart and my um you know am I doing this just you know it's so much easier to just do what everybody else is doing you know that would be easy you know go back to the old the old reading and you know do that and so I'm just, it's, it's really hard to follow my heart. And I, I remember you talking about that. And I think that's all. Thank you for listening. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much, Leslie. Say hi to Tucson. Are you with the Sangha that uh, Anna Douglas started? It's the Shambhala Center. Oh, wow. And the Tucson Meditation Center now, and we combine together. Oh, wow, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, first of all, you can know that loving kindness is a, is a foundational practice, so it's fine to be doing in general. 
Um, yeah, and people have all sorts of views about meditation, and who knows where that other person was coming from. You know, have, maybe has a strong view, but it's it's a um, it's a core foundational practice. So, you know, um, good to do it for many many reasons. But when I hear you, I certainly hear that this is coming. The way you're talking about it, I certainly hear that it's coming out of your heart, or it's something that, you know, another way to say that would be that it's something that's really important to you, and that you feel a kind of a call to to bring in. Yeah, and then it's a matter of, as you're doing, just being skillful with what comes up. And notice if you're, you know, being judgmental of this person, right, which would be natural, right? And then you can work with it. So, you know, we, we haven't talked so much today about how there's a sequence in the, uh, one of the traditional trainings where you go from the, the beings with whom it's easier to develop meta towards the more difficult ones. And as you were saying, this this uh, this one uh, seems to fall in the category of being a difficult being for you, and so it's a little bit harder. Watch if you're, you know, when you do metta for this one, are you? Do you find yourself getting judgmental, or can you? you know, do you go back to the uh, kind of the friction? And again, uh, related to what I mentioned with the judgmental mind work, what's helpful when you have a experience like that is to try to move, you know, notice the narrative level, you know, she did this, she did that. Was it a she? Yeah. And and see if you can go often into the body and feel, let the body be an access route to feel maybe what the emotional pain is. A lot of the judgmental mind is driven by unacknowledged or unprocessed pain that's beneath the surface. And if we can touch that, like, oh, well, that felt really bad when she said that. I, I, felt, I felt angry. I felt sort of sad, you know, and go into those feelings. And when we really can stay with those feelings, you'll find that it tends to work through the reactivity. And so that's a key way to practice. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Leslie. Time for another person. Or, uh, Carlita, was there anything from the chat that um, would be worthy of bringing up? Yes, thank you so much for asking. Uh, one, there's two. One follow-up question uh, is touching into the pain that you just described. Yeah. Is it required to go there first before you can offer forgiveness to that person for the hurt that they caused you? Is that how that dissolves? Let's see. The the um, I haven't taught forgiveness practice. I, I do that in many different contexts, and I think that there, if one can easily go to the pain beneath the surface, which is often not the case. You know, we're caught up in the narrative, and we don't even we often don't even know what the emotion is beneath it. If one can really easily go to touch the pain that's there and can do that initially, great. But for most people, it's not that accessible, you know. Uh, and so it can be helpful with forgiveness as with uh, loving kindness to work with uh, phrases. There could be forgiveness phrases like, uh, 
you know, if you have hurt me in word, thought, or deed, I want to forgive you as much as is possible in this moment or something like that, we would say the phrase and that that might be evocative of the pain and then we might feel the pain. So I think we, we can't necessarily access what's beneath the, um, you know, being judgmental, let's say. We can't um, always access the pain. If we can do that easily, go there first. Yeah, that's great. But generally, what these practices are designed to do is to let them help them to surface, you know, in different ways. But we can't really uh, rush it. We have to, it has to happen more organically. Excellent. Yeah. And so the first question that uh, came up initially is, what if the inner critic is disappointed with oneself when trying to give yourself metta and tending to a hurt? What, say that again. What if the inner critic is... Is disappointed with oneself when trying to give yourself metta and tending to a hurt. Yeah. Like if the block is within you. Yeah, if there's... If, there's, if I'm... Uh, so there's the disappointment in that the metta's not really doing it right. You know, or I'm, I'm being judgmental that my metta isn't good enough. Right. And I'm reading through this. Maybe there's guilt or shame or anger yeah. with something that you did to yourself. Yeah. And how do you apply that to yourself then if yeah. there's those stumbling blocks there? Yeah. First of all, if one is trying metta and it's, you know, it doesn't seem to be really helping. Uh, a few things. First of all, we want to first get the metta going where it flows the easiest. Not to, you know, if there's something related to oneself, it can often be hard. And as I mentioned, for many people, loving kindness towards oneself is generally hard. And so one needs to know that. And if it's the case that loving kindness towards oneself is generally hard, then we want to work up to it. We want to get the metta going with other beings. And it might be something that can take a period of time, right? That we get the metta going, or it could be an individual session, that we, rather than go right away towards loving kindness towards self, spend some time with loving kindness towards another being, or go out with the plants and bushes and trees and so forth, and go where it's easiest. Um, that's really crucial. So it's to have a, a pretty good sense of the kind of the level of difficulty in terms of bringing loving kindness to oneself, whether it's a little bit difficult or very difficult. And if it's quite difficult, then it's a little bit more long-term. And there we, again, it's uh, the, the building the capacity for loving kindness where it's easiest can be really, really uh, crucial. And we want to keep doing that. And then just experiment some for a little while, not to struggle with it. Do it with oneself if it's hard. Do it for, you know, three minutes. And it's hard, then pull back, not to struggle with it. And then if one notices oneself saying, I should be more loving towards myself, um, identify that as being judgmental, and uh, know that, um, notice what triggers it, 
and see if you can actually bring mindfulness to the way the judgment is in the mind and the body. And we want to basically study that over and over and over again. One of the ways that we work with the judgmental mind is to study it with mindfulness, not once or twice, but a hundred times, and see how it is, you know, and see what's going on. That's the starting point. And, you know, in the, in the day long on the judgmental mind, we have many hours exploring the territory. Yeah. So anyone else want to share something or bring something up related to metta? Yeah, please, uh, Lisa Marie. And then Victoria, yeah. And that probably will be enough for today. I was just going to say real quickly that um, today I realized that the that the meta practice is very grounding for me. Yeah. And 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 then you talked about um, concentration, and so I I see how that's that it's that aspect of concentration I think for me that um, makes it so easy for me to come back to it, and makes it so compelling, and feel so. Um, um, I don't know, just uh, like I, it brings a real focus and per, per, sense of purpose to all the practice. Oh, beautiful. It wow. Yeah. It really, oh, beautiful to hear that. It's really resonant for you. Yes. And, and grounding and inspiring. So, yeah, so, um, and yes, bring it in every day as much as you can. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And Victoria, please. Thank you. Um, I have noticed with meta practice that I'm I, my heart is totally wide open, and um, so that's a really wonderful thing. Yeah. And um, of course, you know, it's an ongoing process. And but what I am concerned about now, lately, is that there are some people in my life who are extremely judgmental and um, actually toxic, and they're family members. So. Um, I've managed to avoid personal contact, but I, I'm still receiving like really triggering hostile letters and things like that. So I'm just wondering, um, I'm wondering in terms of, because I have a profound lack of self-compassion, how to balance in terms of boundaries. In other words, I can, I have no trouble even sending meta out to these people who are so, um, so toxic, but but there's a wish in me to somehow find a way, at, at the very least, to to reach a kind of equanimity in the relationship. So I don't know. Um, I, maybe I'm not articulating this very clearly. It's. No, I, I get the, it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let me uh, let me ask more widely. How many people have something like that, and maybe your extended family? Okay. Um, right, and so, yeah, first of all, just to understand that this is what we might call a dance practice. A dance practice? Uh, advanced. Oh, advanced. I thought dance is nicer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's advanced dance. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's advanced practice, which means, and that's always important to remember that this is you know, I use that scale of 1 to 10 all mm -hmm. the time. That, that right. This is high up on the scale, so it's difficult practice. So uh, that, that means many things. One is that uh, uh, 
if you want to bring it to mind, the situation to mind, or if something's just come up, it's good to warm up and get the practice going, whether it's mindfulness or loving kindness going, before you attend to it. And so there, okay. there are many, many dimensions to this. Um, you know, there's your inner practice, there's what you do more outwardly. You were, I heard you especially talking about how to develop equanimity and, you know, and partly also set boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so these are, you know, these are aspects of it. It actually is a, a great question. I, um, I remember maybe four or five years ago, I asked the Wednesday group, uh, oh, okay, I'm, you know, I'm wondering what you'd like me to talk about for the next, uh, you know, in the next months. What topics are of interest to you? And the winner of that particular session was, how do we interact with difficult people? <laughs> that was the winner. And one of the blazing insights that we had very quickly in our investigations was, how do you define a difficult person? A difficult person is someone with whom I have difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you feel the little shift there? <laughs> We'd like yeah. to think that people are objectively difficult, right? <laughs> and there might be people that, you know, there's a lot of agreement about them. But I think it's important to really focus on your own experience. How do you, you know, in your own uh, judgmental mind, your own lack of equanimity, that's a major, uh, a major factor. So it's generally helpful to distinguish inner practice from outer response. And, um, you know, um, and so inner practice would mean how do you work with your own tendencies to be judgmental of them, right? Are you, you know, is there judgmental energy when you use the word toxic, for example, ah. right? Or some of the other language you use. And you can do inner work with that. Again, recognizing that it's difficult that, and you want to work up to it with, you know, if you're doing metta, do it with uh, way easier beings. And that probably, you know, think about this. Is this, is this a really difficult? Should I do metta? Uh, or maybe mindfulness with the judgmental energy could be a more skillful way to go. Or mindfulness with what comes up for you when you either think about them or maybe after you get one of those letters and so forth. So again, I would distinguish inner work, which uh, you can do whether or not you interact with them. That's important just for your own personal well-being. And then there's the outer work, and we could have a few sessions on that, so I'll, I'll try to be brief. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, setting boundaries is important. It's gonna, a lot's going to totally depend on the relationship. Uh, you know, and how it is. So it's very hard to speak uh, generally. But I think, you know, for you, certain boundaries might be important. And again, it's going to depend on the nature of the relationship, what you can say, that you can, you know, you can set boundaries in various ways, right? You can do that by choosing not to be part of gatherings. You can do that by saying that's not okay, which in itself can be pretty tricky, right? It's going mm -hmm. to depend a lot on the context. So maybe that's, that's a beginning. We, we, again, we could take, um, a few hours exploring this one. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> I wish we had a few hours. Yeah, but I hope that's um, a just, good. I hope that's oh, a good start. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. Great. So let's let's close in two ways. And thanks so much for the reflections and questions. We'll close in two ways. First, to bring to mind what may have been helpful from the day, from our session, and any ways that you'd like to take it further or any way that there's been an insight or an intention that you'd like to follow up on. Just let that be there for a few moments. And then we'll close with the dedication of merit. May our time together be a benefit to us. May it be a benefit to those in our lives. And may it go beyond our own circles of friends and family and people we're with. Go beyond those circles to touch ultimately all beings, much as in our radiating metta. May we offer the benefits of our time together to all beings. May all beings be free, be well, knowing that this includes us. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks so much. Thanks to Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay. And I'll do my little goodbye. Until next time, I'll be back in two weeks. I think, I forget, is it Sylvia next week? It is, yes. So Sylvia in one week and then me in two weeks. Okay. Bye, everyone. If you want to unmute and say goodbye, feel free. Thanks, Donald. Thanks, Donald. Thanks, Donald. Thanks, Carlita. I love pushing. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Be well. Have a good week. Thanks, Carlita. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.